If you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians. We're continuing in our series here, uh, working through 2 Corinthians. Well, last week, as part of our um, working through the introduction to 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul provided a brief summary of, of the ways that God can use suffering in the lives of Christian believers for good. And he was responding to a charge coming from influential teachers that the amount of persecution and suffering that Paul was um, uh, being faced with somehow undermined his credibility. It undermined his authority as an apostle. Um, and, and so it was calling into question Paul's ministry. Well, in this section that we're coming to this morning, this verses 12 uh, through 14, Paul addresses another charge, and, and he'll continue to address this charge uh, to the end of the chapter and into chapter 2. And the charge um, uh, that he is concerned with here is that the, the Paul had communicated to the Corinthians that he would visit them twice, once on the way um, through what is now Greece, up through uh, Greece into Macedonia, and then a second time on the way back down, and he anticipated to be a trip back to Jerusalem. However, Paul had changed his mind, um, and he did not return to Corinth when he said he would. And this prompted some at Corinth to insinuate or charge Paul with not keeping his word and perhaps making the decision not to visit Corinth um, because he lacked the courage to face, you know, these these influential teachers who were um, uh, discrediting or calling into question Paul's ministry, and it had created some division within the church. It appears that his unwillingness to make this return visit when he said he would, uh, it was used to strengthen the claims, actually, of these, um, these teachers that had traveled in and, and were, again, undermining Paul's ministry. In verses 12 through 14, Paul begins his response to this charge. And what Paul does here is actually brilliant. Um, So he responds to the charge, and we'll work through how he does this. But but as he does so, he's um, also using this as an opportunity. Because in responding to a charge about his motives or the reasoning why he didn't uh, return when um, he had communicated that he would... um, it gives him a little bit of an opportunity to talk about himself. And what I found as I was studying this is, is that he shares um, uh, about his, his own motivation. He shares about his own um, uh, commitment uh, both to Christ and his love for these Corinthians. And as you work through his defense um, of his apostleship, what I found happening to me, and I, I hope you experience this too, is that Paul's, his, his zeal and his um, commitment, um, uh, his love for God, his love for Christ and the, and the Corinthians, it gets under your skin. It spurs you on towards wanting to be a better Christian yourself. And I think, if, so Paul is, is really kind of genius here. Um, even as he's responding to these criticisms, he's also using this as an opportunity to spur and to encourage the Corinthians on to greater faithfulness, to greater commitment in their being followers of Christ. 
With that in mind, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? This is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing circumstances that we face, Lord, we pray that you would speak your eternal word that does not change. And then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Paul begins his response. um, And and so verse 12 and following, um, this is going to serve, this is the beginning of the body of the letter to the Corinthians. And he begins uh, first with an appeal to his conscience before God. And in his appeal to conscience... He is assuming the importance of the conscience, and more specifically, the importance of maintaining a clear conscience. Paul begins with these words. He says, for our boast is this, and he just simply says, the testimony of our conscience. And so he's, he's you know, using this courtroom language, calling as um, a witness uh, to support his uh, defense, his own conscience uh, before the Lord. And so I just wanted to spend just a, a, a little bit of time just talking about the importance of the conscience that, that God has placed um, in both believers and non-believers. The conscience acts as an internal moral compass. It's that internal sense of right and wrong by which our actions are judged from the inside. And in principle, the conscience confirms sincere and honest behavior while also condemning evil behavior. And this is a human faculty, again, and it's shared by both those who follow Christ and those who don't. With that said, the Bible does say that there are um, uh, aspects uh, of our humanity, and, and as part of our humanity, our conscience, it's not perfect, and it's not infallible. Our conscience can work wrongly in two directions. It can actually create false guilt, because the conscience is in part dependent on being informed. It's not, you know, this, um, uh, it, this infallible divine voice, um, but it's conditioned by uh, a sense of the morality God has placed within us um, and by how we are, or what we are taught. And then it can also work in the other way, or fail to work, I should say, in, in the sense that the Bible talks about the possibility of a conscience being seared uh, or burned um, by constant or, or continual, repeated sinful behavior, so that at first the Spirit uses the human conscience to convict a person of their sins. But over time, that conscience becomes muted, 
the conviction is not as strong or possibly not existent uh, at all. Maintaining a clear or a good conscience was a high priority for Paul. He writes to 1 Timothy in chapter 1, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And Paul later warns Timothy in verse 19 that holding faith and a good conscience, and by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's interesting that Michael just prayed for the deacons and in that same book, um, in First Timothy, when Paul is referring to the qualifications for deacons, he writes, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. When instructing fellow believers about how to conduct themselves toward outsiders, Peter writes, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So now, what happens, though, when a conscience is not clear? Is it too late? And this goes to the heart, uh, to the core of the Christian message, that no, it is not too late. (laughs) Indeed, this is one of the, the, the reasons why God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, into the world that through his atoning death on the cross, he has made it possible for individuals to experience a cleanse, a renewed conscience. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, that is, works that cannot save, to serve the living God. The result of our placing faith in Christ again is that we can draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, Hebrews chapter 10. So in the coming of Christ, there is this opportunity, both when we first come to the Lord, that our our consciences are cleared, and then renewing at least with the Lord through confession and repentance Now, this doesn't mean that we may not need to go to one another where there are issues of sin or things that have been done that maybe where we have wronged others that we may need to still go to them and to um, confess and to seek reconciliation. But the Lord offers out to us this possibility of a renewed conscience. And here in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, so Paul then, he turns and and he uses the testimony of his conscience as a witness to his integrity and godly character. Again, he's using courtroom language, calling upon his conscience as a witness to his simplicity, to his godly sincerity. And so what Paul's saying is contrary to the accusations that that he's being charged with, in fact, his actions both in terms of a severe letter of rebuke, as well as his decision not to visit Corinth, 
when he said he would, have actually been characterized by honesty, by a sincere love for the Corinthians. He knows his heart on this, and he, it's like he's shouting from the rooftops, I am innocent of these charges. Later in, in chapter 6, Paul defends his character in a little more detail. He says this, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. So, and, and the way he's using this idea of conscience, it's not just about his motives, which he is saying, my motives, the Lord is my witness, are pure. But he's also saying, this is actually reinforced by my actions, It's reinforced by my labors among you. It's reinforced by the sacrifices that I have, in fact, made, which you Corinthians know very well about. He's not trying trying to deceive them. And it's interesting, the words he uses here for both sincere, um, uh, that he goes on to use in verse 13 or let me go back to verse 12. Simplicity and godly sincerity. Uh, that's pointing to not just this sense of honesty, a sense of integrity, but it also has the connotation of moral purity. He's saying, I was sincere, and I've only been honest towards you. And more than that, I have maintained faithfulness both to the Lord as well as to you. And the word for sincerity is interesting. It's the Greek, um, let's see, eli kreia. And this is a compound word. Eli refers to the shining of the sun. Kreia is the word related to, the, to a verb, to judge or to discern. And so when he uses this word, he points to his sincerity. He's saying, um, this was a word that would sometimes be used in the marketplace. Um, and, and the way it would be used is um, for those who would sell pottery, there were some who um, lacked character, and so they would try to, they would take pottery that had cracks, and they would fill in the cracks with wax and then paint it over. And they would try to sell it as if it was, you know, perfectly good pottery. And so what people learned to do was to hold the pottery up to the sunlight and to allow the sun to shine through the pottery. And by doing so, you could see if there were cracks or not. What Paul is saying is, if you hold my life up to the sun, to the light, you will see only a a sincere commitment, a love for God, 
a love for you. And in my decision not to come, which we'll come to in the next passage, it was not about some kind of, uh, of fear or uh, a lack of keeping my word. It was nothing of that of the sort. And, and Paul can then say, the reason I can boast is because it's not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. He can boast in his faithfulness and his love and hence his clear conscience, not because of his own earthly abilities. That's what he's saying here is whatever character, whatever the Lord has been able to do within me and, and whatever I've been able to sacrifice, it's not because the Apostle Paul is such a great person or he's so resourceful and intelligent and, and strong. No, he's saying it's, it's not by earthly wisdom that I've been able to accomplish these things. It's by the grace of God. I, I, I get no credit for this, what Paul's saying. That's why I can boast in this, because it's actually a sign. It's a mark that Christ is at work and his spirit is at work in and through me. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, um, Paul echoes this sentiment when he writes, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I want you to see just there's a humility here. I mean, he could have just said, you know, draw the attention, look what a great person, but he's very careful Whatever good there is in me, it's all because of of Christ. It's all because of the grace of God. And he continues with his defense in verses 13 and 14, and he declares that perhaps contrary to another criticism, that what he wrote was clear and consistent with who he was. And this takes us to verse 13. He writes, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read, and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. Okay. Now, when you first read that, that's, it doesn't seem very clear to what he's referring to. But a little time, he's referring to his writings, his letters, at least this one, Second Corinthians, and probably the, the previous letters that he has also written, including the letter that he describes as being both um, severe written with tears. And it may have been that part of the charge here that was, um, uh, that was being uh, lobbed at him uh, was that it could have been twofold. Number one is that Paul had ulterior motives in what he wrote. He had these, there was a, you know, it's as if the, the, this criticism that there was some kind of subtext to his letters, that there was some kind of political motive, perhaps, you know, speaking of, of church politics, um, that maybe Paul had in mind. And Paul's saying, that's not the case. He's saying um, that there may be some uh, things that are difficult to understand, or perhaps warranted clarification, but what he wrote was meant to be straightforward. That's what he's saying here. Um, again, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read. That is, there wasn't a subtext here. There wasn't something underneath that I was actually trying to manipulate you with or to deceive you somehow. 
other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. His point is, all that I wrote, I was trying to be as clear as possible. I wrote what I meant, and I meant what I wrote, um, is what the apostle is saying here. And then there's a second thing he indicates, and it's in a wordplay in the Greek that doesn't translate as well into English. In Greek, uh, the words uh, to read and understand are built on the same root uh, word, ginosko. Uh, ginosko is the, the verb to know, okay? Um, and so to read is anagonoskete. Uh, uh, to understand is epigonoskete. And what, uh, when he talks about reading his letters, um, he wants them uh, to know that what the, they're reading is consistent with their understanding of him. So a second criticism may have been something like this, that, you know, when Paul writes, you know, he, he writes like Zeus. <laughs> His words just have this thunderous impact. But then when Paul's present, it appears that Paul was not physically this, you know, imposing person. Um, that he just had, that the, the his physical presence didn't seem to be as uh, strong, uh, as thunderous as Paul came across in his letters, in his writing. And what Paul is saying, no, um, what you read, my letters, what you understand uh, in terms of what is communicated through your knowledge of who I am, these were consistent. These are of a piece. And indeed, he can later say, um, I labored among you. You actually know who I am. I was with you for roughly 18 months. And so if you think about it, you yourselves will know, at least partially, he says, um, that there was consistency between who I am and what I wrote. He was not trying to portray himself one way in his writing and another way in his relationships with them. And, you know, this is so interesting. He highlights an important value for us, especially in an age of social media, to try to maintain a consistency in who we are with the way we present ourselves um, through our communications, um, whether it's just our, our conversations, but especially in how we present ourselves, you know, online, where it's so easy, you know, in fact, we're even encouraged to, to turn ourselves into a kind of brand. And that brand may have little connection with who we actually are. Now, of course, we, we present it like it does. But what the apostle says, there was not, I, I was not branding myself. I was, I was trying to be who I am in, in my person, uh, and that's who I was trying to communicate in my writings as well. I, I, and, you, and if you think about my relationship to you, you yourselves will recognize that this has been the case. In defending his character, Paul has appealed to the testimony of his conscience as a witness to his sincerity and honesty. He's reminded them that he has been straightforward in his writing and that the way he has expressed himself in writing is consistent with who he is. And then finally here, Paul concludes this brief defense uh, where he expresses his confidence that on the final day, that is the day of Christ's return, Paul will boast before Christ because of the Corinthians. And he hopes the reverse will be true as well. 
And so this is verse 14. And here the apostle just simply says, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast in you. And here the apostle is communicating how he views the Corinthians. He views them as, um, as a source of pride in, in a healthy way, in the sense that, and, and he, for the apostle, the return of Christ is just part of the furniture of his psychology. It looms large for him that one day Christ will return. He will set all things right. And on that day, the apostle Paul, along with the other apostles, they do not want to be ashamed. And Paul is saying, when the Savior returns, one of the things that I'm going to celebrate, as he writes to the Corinthians, is you. Now, this is interesting because this church, as we've talked about, had a lot of problems. But regardless of the the amount of problems and and dysfunction uh, that they suffered, they were nevertheless a true church. And even as individuals, though perhaps the grace that was being manifest in their lives, uh, being manifested in their lives was deficient, what Paul's saying, it's nevertheless true grace. It's genuine grace. And because of this, and because of your commitment to Christ and your love for the Lord, this will be a source of thanksgiving, a source of celebration, and just a, a sense that I, I was used as an instrument for your good. And likewise, he says, what should be the case is when you appear before the Lord Christ, I hope that you can celebrate me, what Paul's saying, that you can celebrate my ministry among you, that you will see it and be grateful for how the Lord used me so that in return, you can boast in my ministry, um, uh, especially among you. He makes a similar claim about the Thessalonians when he writes, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. And just as I was thinking about this, it just made me um, think about, you know, who, who is it? Do I think this way about the people here at ECC? Who are those individuals that I want to celebrate, that I want to boast in when Christ returns? And who are the people who have invested in my life? that I can also just celebrate and be thankful to the Lord for bringing those individuals to minister and to encourage me. We should all have those kinds of relationships as we prepare for Christ's return. Let me, again, just conclude with some questions. Paul can boast that his conscience is clear, at least in respect to his ministry, his sincerity, his honesty, and his concern for others. So here's the question. Can you make the same claim? And if not, what is it that you need to do in order to gain a clear conscience? Second, is the person that you make yourself out to be in your words, in your communications, are they consistent with who you are? Is it transparent? Is it authentic? 
And then again, just as the Corinthians would serve as a source of godly boasting and celebration at the coming of Jesus, who are the people in your life, whether in terms of their ministry to you or your ministry to them, that you can likewise celebrate before Christ at his coming? Well, let's pray. Unto you, most gracious God, we have lifted up our souls in your heavenly sanctuary. Lord, we have praised you with our heart and voice. Help us to find you in whatever situation we find ourselves, and that we would be able to give worship to you with sincerity and honesty and integrity of our lives. Lord, by your grace, aid us in all, every good work. Support us in our difficulties in our weaknesses, may you be strong. And we pray it not just for our good, but for the sake of your great name. Amen.